Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 529 for the 5th of February, 2017. This week, TechSmith just released a minor version update of its flagship application, Snagit, but the improvements are surprisingly robust for what's considered a minor release. I store random thoughts and small stories that show up and have some promise, but aren't big enough for their own segment. When the batch is large enough, I compile them and give them a fancy title. That's what you're in for this week. In short circuits, Popcorn Time ransomware starts by apologizing to you, but you're still going to have to spend nearly $1,000 to get your data back. There is a better way. A new company promises to help us identify and eliminate fake news. In spare parts, only on the website, most companies seem to concentrate more on the loss of customers than on the loss of data if their systems are breached. If you're a Facebook advertiser, you might want to take a look at an app from ConsumerAcquisition.com. And maybe you remember when computers were fragile, but some of today's computers can survive a misadventure at a construction site. When Snagit 13-4 was released in mid-2016, I was impressed with a number of things. And I'll explain that 13 slash 4 in a minute. I was impressed not in the least with the feature set that was nearly identical between the Windows version, that's 13, and the Mac version, that's 4. Now, what looks, based on the numbering scheme, to be a small step upgrade brings several new outstanding features. Snagit is an essential application for anybody who needs to document computer applications, but it's also a winner for teachers, software developers, and anybody who needs to create an image for use on the Internet. Both Windows and the Mac OS can capture screen images natively, so why do we need a program like Snagit? Well, at the very least, Snagit can capture parts of the screen as well as scrolling or panoramic views that capture more than just what's on the screen. Snagit makes it easy to obscure private information, to add highlights and arrows, to number steps, to crop erase or modify parts of an image. All of those features existed in version 13-4, but now there's more. And by the way, from now on, I'm just going to refer to this as version 13. If you're a Mac user, just substitute 4 when I say 13. Despite the marginal number change from 13.0 to 13.1, it feels more like a major upgrade. There were some minor but vexing problems with version 13.0. Those seem to have been all but resolved, and performance has been enhanced a bit. For example, the initial version 13.0 release was slow to react if the user happened to have a high-res system with more than one monitor. TechSmith developed some patches that largely corrected the issue, but in version 13.1, the problem is nearly gone without the patches. The new features are the ones that make this feel like a major upgrade, though, particularly the magic wand and background autofill. Now, don't get me wrong here, this isn't content-aware fill like you'd find in Photoshop, but Snagit now makes it possible for users to select objects or areas of a captured image and then move them, remove them, or fill the selection with another color or with the surrounding background. 
check out the TechBiter Worldwide website for an example. I started with one of the background images that I use for screens on my desktop. Obviously, I have the full resolution image and don't need to capture a picture of it from the desktop. But let's say that for whatever reason, I needed to capture an image of the screen to illustrate a point, and I don't want the icons that are there. Perhaps that point I would be illustrating is Snagit's ability to remove parts of an image. Or is that too recursive? A side note here. Master programmers say that to understand recursion, you must first understand recursion. Software engineers find humor there. We'll just move on. So you'll see my screen capture on the TechBiter Worldwide website with the icons that I don't want. In the control panel, I picked the Free Form Selection tool, and then I chose Autofill. Next, I drew a marquee around the icons that I want to remove, used the Selection tool to make the selected area active, and clicked Delete. The result? Absolutely perfect. But do note, the icons were in the sky, which has little variation. The more pattern there is, the less effective the tool will be. So you know that I like to always try to break things, and this time I gave Snagit an utterly impossible challenge. I started with a picture of a butterfly at the Franklin Park Conservatory. Now only a fool would try to select a butterfly and remove it from a picture like this, so perhaps that'll give you some insight into how my mind works. Instead of deleting the butterfly, I just slid it to the right. And as you can see, the fill isn't very convincing. But then it shouldn't be. The simple fact is that Snagit now makes possible some functions that previously would have had to go to Photoshop for additional work. The second big change in the 13.1 version is the ability to capture not only the name of the application the screen was captured from, but also its version number. It's unlikely that designers and documentation specialists will be very excited about that feature, but anyone who works with software developers will be delighted to be able to capture screen images that illustrate problems with the software and to have that image carry along with it details about the application itself. I grabbed a screenshot when I was writing this article, and when the image's details are revealed in the Snagit library, I could see that the application is the 64-bit version of UltraEdit Studio version 16. That kind of information could be highly useful to a developer. The third primary new feature is the ability to create localized callouts. Localization is the process of translating program information for other countries and regions. Text can be extracted from the callouts and in a format that's accessible for translation. That would speed the process considerably. And for those who work with a team and want to maintain consistency, Snagit now has shared styles and themes. Once defined, styles can be shared with other users. In addition to maintaining brand consistency, sharing styles instead of having each user create their own is a lot more efficient. So the bottom line is five cats. If you need screenshots, Snagit has you covered. Normally, a step version application receives only a brief mention to describe what's new, but this step version took several very large steps. And the good news is that if you upgraded to version 13, or 4 on the Mac, there is no charge for this upgrade. If you haven't yet upgraded to version 13, the upgrade is $25, and the cost for new users is just 50 there are other applications that capture screen images, but Snagit is the only one that makes everything easy. I didn't even mention that it can capture video, too, and then convert the videos to animated GIFs for times when you need more than a picture but less than a full video. Well, I guess now I did mention them. 
Additional details are available on the TechSmith website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. a place where I store random thoughts and small stories that show up and have some promise, but aren't quite big enough for their own segment. When the collection grows large enough, I upend the box on the desk, figuratively, pick up each article and shake the dust off, figuratively, see if there's anything worth talking about. Some of the scraps get tossed into the trash as I mutter to myself, what was I thinking? And others do find their way into a collection like this, which I'll call an anthology because anthology sounds better than a big bag full of little things. We'll start with the deleted files that weren't. Imagine your surprise if you opened your Dropbox account and found files that you thought you had deleted in 2009. And that's exactly the surprise some users of the service received recently. Dropbox says as a safety measure, it keeps files you've deleted for 30 days and then deletes them. Eight years is something more than 2,900 days, and 2,900 is somewhat more than 30. Keeping the files around briefly is a good idea because people have been known to delete files and then decide they really want to keep them. And 30 days is a reasonable period, but not 2,900 days. The files you thought you deleted years ago could still be on a server somewhere. Apparently, somebody at Dropbox noticed that problem, and in the process of correcting the bug, the company restored deleted files to some users' accounts. A Dropbox employee posting on the company's public forum was quick to point out that this was an internal error, not a breach. Dropbox says the bug has been fixed, so deleted files will be permanently deleted after 60 days, not 30 as was the case previously. The company was emphatic about the problem being just a mistake and not a breach, probably because an earlier attack exposed passwords for 68 million users. Not long ago, I wrote about the modest little Chromebook computers gaining popularity at schools. Adding a stylus could make them even more popular. Steve Jobs thought that adding a stylus to an electronic device was stupid. But users of the devices seem to have a somewhat different view, and soon two new Chromebook models will be released as convertible computers, meaning the keyboard folds back under the screen, and with a stylus. The computers will be from Acer and Asus, in addition, all Chromebooks released this year are supposed to be able to run Android apps, and Adobe has released apps that provide access to creative cloud files. Don't expect full-featured Photoshop or Premiere applications on the Chromebook, but users will be able to make some modifications to existing creative cloud files on these little computers. Samsung announced Chromebook models with a stylus earlier, so now three of the main players in the market segment have them. Dell, HP, and Lenovo will probably follow before long. The Acer Chromebook Spin 11 and the Asus Chromebook C213 will be available in late spring. Google says these machines are designed for students and that the stylus will work like a pencil in that it has an eraser. The stylus isn't electronic, so it doesn't need a battery and it doesn't have to be paired with the computer. 
Google's Keep function includes optical character recognition that's surprisingly good at deciphering handwriting. That makes the future interesting for these little Chromebooks. E-Video. Instead of sending an email to your associates at work, a company called Viewedit wants you to use their Vidyard application to send a video message. Somehow this doesn't strike me as desirable, logical, or workable. Back in the 1960s, yes, I remember that far back, Bell, the telephone company, predicted that video phones were right around the corner. We've been around several corners since then, and although some of our phones are capable of sending and receiving video, we still reserve video for conferences, and many people don't like it even for that. In the 1960s, people objected because they'd have to be well-dressed at all time if a caller would be able to see them. Today's concerns are similar. I prepared this segment on a Sunday morning. I was wearing yesterday's shirt because I hadn't yet taken a shower. To send a video message, well, I'd need to get cleaned up first. In Viewedit's defense, the company does seem to be positioning this as an enterprise service, and presumably all of the people at the office would be presentable. That might not extend to people working from home, though. And perhaps I should mention that this past Wednesday was Work Naked Day. Or maybe I shouldn't mention that. Just forget I said that Wednesday was Work Naked Day. But let's assume that all those concerns are resolved somehow. Is a video message really better than a written message? I don't think so. Many inter-office messages ask questions or provide instructions. The person receiving a list of instructions might conceivably need to write them down. Besides being a waste of time, that introduces the opportunity for a transcription error. So I think I'll just stick with email. Thank you very much. And speaking of email, not all scams arrive that way. Most of the scams you hear about on the podcast or read about on the website are ones that use email, and more recently, phony telephone calls. Postal mail is being used, too, though. The IRS doesn't use email to request information or payments. Most people have figured that out. But the IRS does send notices by mail, and crooks now seem to be able to create pretty good fakes. Fake tax bills tied to the Affordable Care Act are common. Notices that look like legitimate letters from the IRS request payment because of reports received from a third party. That's exactly the kind of message the IRS does send. The fakes are fraudulent versions of CP2000 notices that inform taxpayers about discrepancies in their tax returns. The IRS says there are several ways to spot a fraud. First, the IRS always asks that checks be made out to Internal Revenue Service, the full name. The phonies want you to just use IRS instead. They can then set up a phony company that uses those initials and cash your check. Second, payments are to be sent to a post office box in Austin. The IRS has mailing addresses in several cities, so if you decide to send a payment without checking any further, at least use the address where you send your annual tax returns. But better still, just pick up the phone and call the IRS to determine whether they have sent you an inquiry. Just because it's on paper, and just because it looks like it's from the IRS, doesn't mean that it really is from the IRS. In Short Circuits... 
Popcorn Time Ransomware takes an unusual approach for ransomware. It apologizes. Then it offers you a choice. Pay about $1,000 to get your data back or help to infect others' computers. Here's a better choice. Tell them to bug off, clear the malware from the computer, and restore from backup. But let's take a look at this unusual approach anyway. The group that discovered this one, Malware Hunter Team, says the victims are instructed to pay at least one Bitcoin. The value of a Bitcoin varies currently. It's around $970. Victims could also use what the malware developers call the nasty way. The nasty way involves sending a link to people you know and infecting their computers. If two or more people install this file and pay, the crooks say, we will decrypt your files for free. Now, of course, we all know that people who create ransomware always tell the truth. So this may or may not be true. The developers say the money you send will be used for charity in Syria. Possible? Sure. Equally possible, though, the scammers are in Russia or Bulgaria, and the only charity is their own bank account. When a computer is infected, the message that pops up apologizes and then says the developers are computer science students living in Syria. The message cites the death of loved ones in the war. We are extremely sorry we are forcing you to pay, the message says, but that's the only way we can go on living. The only real defense against these dark arts is a full and complete backup, or preferably more than one. If your computer then becomes infected with malware and your files are encrypted, getting back to normal is a fairly easy two-step process. First, you have to get the malware off the computer. Once that's been done, you can restore everything from backup, but only if you have a backup. Finding and exposing fake news looks like it's going to become a big business. A new startup company called Zeta Cloud claims to trace back news articles and identify those that have been contaminated by deliberately false reports. The company is headquartered in Romania. Official intelligence company Basis Technology in the U.S. has provided software to the company. Professional journalists vet their sources to ensure that the information they're providing is accurate. But erroneous information can creep in. When multiple sources report the same misinformation, the echo chamber effect makes even outright lies seem plausible. Incidentally, that's a technique that was used successfully by TASS, the Soviet news agency, during the Cold War. The Zeta Cloud team has developed a trust algorithm that calculates trustworthiness scores in real time for online articles. These scores can then be used by readers to make decisions about whether to trust an article. The company uses Basis Technologies' Rosette Multilingual Entity Extraction, Sentiment Analysis, and Text Embedding to establish profiles for reputable and not-so-reputable news by tracing references across languages. Basis Technologies' background involves verifying identity, understanding customers, anticipating world events, and uncovering crime. It has been in business for two decades and uses data analysis to improve sales, reduce risk, and save lives. Zeta Cloud received a grant from Google's Digital News Initiative supporting innovation in journalism. If you'd like more information, you can visit the company's website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And speaking about the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find spare parts there. That's the only place you'll find it. 
This week, most companies seem to concentrate more on a loss of customers than on a loss of data if their systems are breached. If you're a Facebook advertiser, you might want to take a look at an app from ConsumerAcquisition.com. And perhaps you remember when computers were fragile, but some of today's computers can survive a misadventure at a construction site. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.